Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. With that, I want to dive into the Word of God this morning and continue in the series on spiritual warfare. Today we're going to talk only kind of obliquely about the enemy, because I want to talk more about some of the things he's doing, both in the world in general and in the church. I don't know if you've heard this word strongholds um, used in the church. Lots of different faith streams uh, use this word differently. I want to define for you what we mean here when we talk about strongholds, what I believe the scriptures mean. And I'm carrying a really heavy burden as I get ready to give this message because all week I've felt the Lord wrestling with me in the area of, of strongholds. And I feel that he's been doing an important work in my heart. And he's been really superintending the process by which this sermon came together. Now, I I know that should be every week, but sometimes it's just really trying to write something that I believe God is saying. This week, I really felt God giving me the words and messing with my own heart. Here's what I want to ask of you. that The strong burden I have is that as you hear this message, you would not primarily be thinking about other people who need to hear this, about the challenge you need to echo into someone else's life, or even say, amen, I affirm that, I agree with everything. I want to ask you to locate yourself, you personally, in this message. Because I believe that for many of us, we are in the grips of strongholds that are robbing the fullness of life from us. And so I think there are things you're going to legitimately say, oh, someone else needs to hear this. Or you might even be pointing back at me and go, you need to hear this. I'm hearing it. <laughs> Trust me, when you write a message, the Lord messes with you. I think that's why it's called a message. <laughs> he has been rocking me all week. Please, in faith, trust that that work is being done. But you are here to receive the word now. And I'm going to ask you to receive it for you, not for your neighbor, not for someone else. The one thing to keep in mind throughout this series on spiritual warfare is this. We are at war against an enemy who has a single-minded purpose, and that is to undermine the work of God. Remember that. Because that's the one thing, if you forget, you will actually become a, a casualty of that war. The best way to lose a fight is to not realize you're in a fight And the other person's beaten on you, and you're none the wiser. The word of God this morning comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let me just pray again for us as we get ready to receive this. God, it's not a neutral thing to hear a sermon 
Each of us is wondering if we will agree, if we believe, if we align ourselves with what is being said. This morning, I just pray right now, this moment, that you would open each heart to receive what you have for them. Lord, we want to be vigilant, but we don't want to be defensive against you. So whatever you are trying to get through, please get through to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has one central mission, and that is to redeem people and to redeem this world. And Satan has one core mission, and that is to thwart that mission of God at every opportunity. He wants to keep all people from seeing that Jesus truly is Savior. That's the last thing he wants is for anyone in this world to truly believe that Jesus offers hope and freedom and salvation because we are all in agreement that the world is a mess, but we're many of us in disagreement about how that mess will be addressed. He wants to keep Christians living a mediocre and defended mediocre life rather than living the fullness of the life described in the pages of Scripture. The amazing promises, the stories that are told in Scripture, the miracles, the unbelievable fullness of joy and gratitude and unity, he doesn't want that for us. He wants us to take a counterfeit, mediocre version, the generic version of the drug, not the name brand. You get what I'm saying? That is what he wants for those who are already saved and in the church, is that we would experience such a lame version of this faith that it will grow boring over the years. And he wants to keep this world in cycles of brokenness and pain and darkness. He delights in seeing what's happening in the Middle East. He delights in seeing what's happening in our U.S. cities. The rampant crime, the restlessness, the division, he loves it all. He does not want to see anything fixed, anything redeemed. This is the enemy we're up against. And yet the good news is that our God is not content with that. His relentless mission is to redeem and to repair and restore and save all things. Now, this enemy of ours occasionally intervenes in very dramatic supernatural ways, very direct ways. We might call such times things like demonic oppression. And Lord willing, we may explore that in a future message because we can't just ignore that. I can't deliver a series on spiritual warfare and not address the fact that sometimes in this world, crazy, supernatural, weird things happen. I've borne witness to them. I cannot explain them through my rational, scientific mind. And we need to have some understanding of what God's word says about that. I'm a former trained scientist, and I am kind of a skeptic at heart, but man, I've seen and, and witnessed things that I have no explanation for. Maybe you have too. We want to explore that in a future message, but this morning, I want to look at a more indirect way in which the enemy is at work against us, against the whole world. In our text this morning, if you want to flash that that passage back up, Paul refers to this thing called strongholds. Strongholds are fortified structures, fortresses, basically, that existed in a town, walls, towers, uh, parapets, places where you can defend a city very capably. And he says, there are strongholds that exist in this world for which the enemy is responsible, 
and they hold people in bondage. These strongholds are used to blind and to bind people from the very work of God. And what he says is these are not strongholds just existing in supernatural power alone where someone can't move, they're paralyzed, they're, they're struck blind or something like that. Those things can happen. I've seen them happen. But he's saying that actually the majority case of these strongholds are not supernatural inabilities or incapacities. They are arguments, pretensions, thoughts, ideas and beliefs that bind and blind people so that they cannot move forward. It it blinds those who do not believe from seeing in Jesus who he truly is. It blinds those who are in Christ from being fully obedient and thereby experiencing the fullness of what Christian life is meant to be. In the ancient world, sorry guys, this is not working. If you could advance the slide for me. A fortress stronghold was a formidable thing. If you think about it, these structures existed in the era before high explosive weapons. So in the face of missiles and tanks, this is nothing. You blow that up in a, in a second. But think about this. In those days, other than catapults, which are really hard to move around, a bunch of dudes would have to just run at that thing hoping that someone would make it to the top of the ladder. And then that's not a victory because once you make it to the top of the ladder, you're alone against a whole bunch of other dudes on the other side. This is not an easy thing to take over. Just the sight of a well-constructed fortress was enough to deter attack. Many invading armies would come upon a city, take one good look at the walls and go, yeah, no. Nah, too many of us are going to die trying to take that. It is impenetrable. That's the idea of a stronghold. It appears to be indestructible, inaccessible, impenetrable. It looks like it's unassailable. There's no way an attack on that will work because it's just too strong to be defeated. And what's amazing to me is that Paul's not talking about structures. He's talking about ideas, beliefs. And it's not surprising to me that at the heart of Satan's armory, one of his greatest weapons would be ideas. Because ideas, thoughts, beliefs, are at the root of all human speech and action, every organization, every movement that has ever marked human history. Everything we do as human beings begins as a thought. Nothing has ever been built or destroyed that didn't begin with an idea. Do you understand that? Ideas matter. They matter supremely because everything in human life rises out of ideas. And ideas form convictions, thoughts, beliefs, boundaries by which our human lives are defined. And what Paul is arguing is that in the world there is a prevailing wisdom, a prevailing kind of ideology or philosophy that is so unassailable, so seemingly universal, so strong, perhaps many believe so logically airtight, you cannot assail it. Philosophically, intellectually, the prevailing wisdom of the world looks often to us like that. Like there's nothing that can be done. Everyone believes this. It seems self-evident. How can you possibly throw a stone at the strongholds that govern human life? In this world, what makes these ideas so formidable? 
Because what Paul is contending is that these ideas are not God's ideas. They're not true in the sense that God's truth is behind them. But nonetheless, they have power over us. What makes them so powerful, so formidable? I have some suggestions. This is certainly not an exhaustive list. But I think there are some reasons why the wisdom of the world is so powerful. Here's one reason. They usually contain an element of truth, something that lowers our guard, something that at the face of it feels true enough that you want to hear more. It builds, if if I start out by saying red is blue, how are we going to have a conversation? Right? If I begin with blue is blue, but now you, I got you because I've begun with something we can all universally agree with. It's building incrementally on something that binds us together and then taking it further and further and further. Every good lie has to have an element of believability. I'm not saying the world intentionally lies. Sometimes it does. But I think the one who is at work in the world is a liar by his native language. And the best constructed lies begin as something we all can agree on. In fact, this is how all idolatry begins. All idolatry in human life begins by taking something we ought to value and then leading us to value it to some supreme level far beyond anything God intended. It is to affirm a good thing and then to begin to worship and center around that good thing. I I may be delving now into some deeply personal things, but I think we need to just hear this. This needs to be said for all of us, myself included. There's so many examples of worldly truth that sounds like this. I think we'd all agree that children are important. Would you agree with that? And in general, all children are important, but let's face it, my children are more important than your children. Okay, I mean, it's just how it is. So children matter, and many of us grew up painfully aware that we didn't matter quite as much to our folks as we wished. They weren't at the things we wanted them to be at, so they were distant in some ways, inaccessible. And so our generation, we have done a great job of compensating for a lot of that deficit. We are so present that maybe we're too present We begin with this universal value, this virtue, that children matter. And then we believe this lie that children matter supremely. That they are the highest priority we ought to have in our lives. That nothing on earth matters more than my kids. And while I want that to be sentimentally true in some way, I don't think there's a child alive who wants to see their parents love them at the expense of their own faith life, their own marriage, their own health, their own well-being. The idolatry of children begins with the value that children matter. And it absorbs us and captivates us in such a huge way that we are sacrificing everything to make sure our children know they are number one. But that's not the way the Bible has ordered the world. Children are incredibly important. They should be protected at all costs. But God is first. Our response to our God is first. And you do well for your children if your faith life is healthy. That's the best way to pass along your greatest treasure to your kids. 
It's a stronghold because so many people agree that it's hard when someone pulls the kid card to go, well, I don't know. Right? If you say, well, it's because of my kid, what are you going to say to someone? We face that all the time, raising our children. How do we draw the line between kids being important and kids becoming an idol for us? Here's another one. Unity matters. In the church, especially in a divided world, our oneness matters. That we can all agree on. But oneness at what cost? Because the Tower of Babel, do you remember that story, the Tower of Babel? And that's why we all speak different languages. Because people agreed all together to do one thing together. One love, one mission, one cause, one people. It's exactly what we think every, that God wants. Oneness, unity, but it was not a unity submitted to the feet of Christ. It was unity based on something else. The sameness of our purpose, the sameness of our language, the sameness of the color of our skin. I say this to our church because this is something I think we do need to awaken to. This is a predominantly Asian-American church. Anyone surprised by that? I mean, if you're just noticing that, you know, maybe check your eyeglass prescription. It's not all Asian-Americans here, but there's a lot of of Asian-Americans here. And that immigrant story is a very shaping part of our personal stories. It's woven into the way we experience and process faith growing up. And it's important to us that we acknowledge some of those Asian American roots and heritage and address some of the deficits that came from that story because there's a lot of pain wrapped up in it too. I think that matters. It's important. But there's a point at which it goes from being important to eclipsing what is truly central around the church. Where does our unity actually come from? Does it come from the sameness of our ethnicity or our appearance or our heritage or our story? Or does it come from the shared experience that every person here can have? That they were once lost and they were found. They were once blind and now they can see. The reason these strongholds are so powerful is because they build on something that we can agree on. And then it takes it further than God intended. Another reason these strongholds are so powerful is that they encourage or enable a kind of empowerment or independence even from God. Everyone wants to hear that we are truly free, beholden to no one, obligated to nothing. That freedom means no one anywhere has any claim over me. I am my own person and that is as it should be. I think at some level we can affirm the value, the importance of liberty and freedom. Amen? I hope we can all affirm that. That's a good thing. I'd much rather be free than in prison, in bondage, in chains. And yet the world has taken the value of freedom and taken it way too far. The enemy says to us, don't depend on anyone for anything. You go and work hard and get what you want, what you need, when you want it, when you need it. Do not put yourself in a position to ever need anyone else, not even God. Now, the flip side of that is don't become a sponge and wait for everyone to do everything for you. But it's a stronghold, and it's a very uniquely American stronghold that I don't need anyone or anything else. I depend on me for everything I need. 
I will not wait on God. I will not put myself in a position where my brothers and sisters ever have to be my brothers and sisters. Just pause for a moment. Think how uncomfortable you are when someone asks you out of concern, can I help you? Do you need something? And you're like, I'm okay, I'm good. Isn't that like the instinctive response for the American people? I'm good, don't worry about me, I got it. I'm sometimes carrying a giant load of stuff and someone's like, can I help you? I'm like, don't worry, I got it, I don't got it. As I've gotten older, I'm coming to grips with that. I don't got it. Like, please help me, my, my Lord, help me. But when I was younger, I hated receiving help. It was hard for me to be in any position where I receive help and thereby I feel obligated to another or feel disempowered because I needed someone just to exist, to get through. I hated that feeling. I like to know that I don't need to do And you know, part of the reason that that develops is deep pain when we have depended on others, trusted others, and we're deeply hurt. I get that. There's a thing where we have pain, we learn lessons, but then we take it and build laws for living around that painful experience rather than turning to God. Here's another one. It feels like freedom, a kind of freedom and empowerment. You are the only one who gets to decide who you are. You are the only one who gets to define your identity. That's a big one today. No one else has a right to tell you who you are. And at a deep fundamental level, I agree with some, some uh, aspect of that. I don't want another human being to become the defining voice in any of our lives. Not a leader, not a pastor, not a parent. Someone else should not be the defining voice that tells you who you are. But it is a lie that you can actually discover your identity independent of all other beings in the universe. That is not true. We all need one another to develop the fullest sense of who we are because you don't exist in a vacuum. You exist in a society. Who you are is in some ways revealed to you by what others are holding up as a mirror, telling you, here's you, even the things you don't believe about you, your virtues, your strengths, your hidden gifts. You don't know those things without other people. And certainly the one who made you has the right to have a voice in how you see yourself, your identity, the thing you see when you look back in the mirror the one who lovingly shaped you in your mother's womb has the right to have a voice in who you see yourself as. But the world will take the virtue of freedom, the desire not to come under the bondage of another person's ideas and create walls around that so that no one has the right to say anything to me about who I am except me. It robs us of the fullest sense of our true identity when we close ourselves off to others. But it is very empowering at first blush to hear something like that. Only you get to, deci to decide. Another reason that these spiritual strongholds are so powerful is that they form a morally convenient framework that limits our obligations. Put another way, they promise everything and ask very little in return. It's all gain, no pain. And that's lovely. <laughs> I would love that. If someone told you you can get a pill and develop a six-pack over three weeks and it was $100 a pill, some of us would do it, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Not a single push-up, not a single sit-up, perfectly formed pecs and abs, yes, please. All gain, no pain. We would love that. We like the idea that we can have a moral framework that promises all benefit and requires no cost, no suffering, no hardship from us whatsoever. 
And so we create ideas, philosophies that are spiritual, moral, religious, that, that seem to promise a kind of freedom, but often lead us into a kind of bondage. As an example, I've heard people say this, do you really think the God of the universe who makes everything, who oversees all of the billions of lives, actually sits there and cares about who you sleep with? Do you really think a busy, all-powerful God sits there and worries about who you are having sex with? I say, that's the amazing thing to me, is that he sees me, he sees you. He actually does care. He actually does care about those things. But it's amazing to me how many people dismiss God from an area of their lives just by saying a truism like, do you really think God cares about that? What if he does? What if he actually cares so much about you, he cares even about the things you can't imagine an almighty God would care about? What if he sees how deeply that will touch you and cares about how you do, how you experience this life? Here's another one. Many people today in the church, even, believe that it is wrong to share your faith with another person in the hopes that they will share your faith. What am I saying? Many in the church believe that evangelism is immoral today. In fact, if Barna poll recently found that 47% of Christian millennials in the United States believe that it is immoral to share your faith in the hopes that someone else will convert. Now, here's what I believe. I don't think it's right to shove our moral views in someone's face if they haven't met the God who shapes our morality, if they're not submitted to him. There's no reason we should be dialoguing about abortion or sex or any of these things apart from first saying, do you know the Jesus who shapes our moral being? That's the most important battle. But, but if that is not central to us, we are in trouble as a church. Who we are sharing is not a certain ideology or a political framework. Who we are sharing is the one who loves us, shaped us, knows us, wants to offer us hope and a life. It's amazing to me that $675 billion are spent every year in the advertising industry. And we are consuming it nonstop. You think you're looking at social media, you're, you're generally looking at ads. You think those people who do nothing but put on makeup and try on cool clothes and travel are doing it out of the goodness of their heart? Someone's paying them. Wake up, someone's paying them. And we don't seem to be bothered when things that are overtly designed to influence our consumption choices are influencing us all day, and yet we think when we're talking about eternity, the formation of the human spirit, hope that lasts forever, it's wrong to tell someone else of the hope that we found. How can that be? We've gone from saying evangelism is difficult to evangelism is immoral. That's a stronghold even in the church when nearly half of our young Christians believe it is wrong morally to tell someone else of the hope that you found in Jesus Christ in the hope that they will find him too. And the thing is with these strongholds, the more people believe them with us, the harder it is to change our minds because we are ultimately social beings and the more people agree. Hasn't every old person looked at some fashion trend in the young people and said, who decided that looks good? When I was 
a young adult finally emerging out of being cool, that, that happens. What, what age would you say that happens when you finally realize you're not cool no matter how you dress? You're the past. I think for me it was like 30. And I realized, oh, Lord, I am forever fixed in my 27-year-old wardrobe, and I think I'm cool. No one else does. And I would look at these, and the thing around that age was those pants that were like size 82s, where three people could fit in them, and they're just like all cinched together at the waist, but they're, you know, they look like a samurai shogun's pants. You know? And I was looking at them like, who was the first guy who thought, I'm going to try it and not get beat up? And it worked, and everyone said, and the more people go, I'm going to get that shoe, I'm going to buy that, I'm going to dress that way, and the more people do it, the more, you know, now all over the internet, older people, you know, young kids, we have memes too. And most of our memes make fun of you, <laughs> and you don't care because you already think we're not cool. But some of our memes are, have you noticed that all the young boys today have the same hairstyle as your grandma? <laughs> it's that, right? And so it's like, we make fun of that, wondering... But you know why you're okay with it? Because 99% of your peers agree that's cool. It doesn't matter what those old people think because the more people agree with anything we believe, the more it's okay to believe it. The harder it is to unseat that idea from our minds because who are you going to fight against? The whole world, everyone thinks this is okay. Everyone thinks this is cool. Everyone likes this. It is now a universal fixture in human life. You cannot argue with it. I've heard of strongholds like this. Even when I was in grad school studying to be a genetic engineer, I was studying to become a scientist, a rational person. And I do believe in science. I affirm it. I love science. I think science explains so much of life. But I heard people with deep conviction say there's nothing in this world that's real that cannot be proved scientifically. Everything else is myth, imagination. And I fully disagree with it because I've experienced too many things that cannot be explained by science. I love science. It doesn't make me an imbecile or the village idiot. It just tells me there's more to the world than what the world tells me. But it was an unassailable belief in my grad program. No one wanted to talk about it. No one wanted to hear it. And when I challenged that stronghold, I got two different reactions. One was complete offense. How did you get into this program when you're a Neanderthal. <laughs> like, what? And the other response I would get is, you're just an idiot. There's no reason to listen further. And they dismissed me out of hand as someone with whom they could not have an intelligent dialogue. I'm irrelevant. I'm illogical. The thing about strongholds is that they're deeply believed, but not deeply reflected on much of the time. And when someone challenges them, enough people believe them that it's very hard to overturn these kinds of strongholds. Earlier in that second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I think that's one of the weirdest names for Satan that I've seen in Scripture. He's called the prince or the ruler of the kingdom of the air in some places. He's given the title God of this age or prince of this world, ruler of this world. Those are strange titles to give to God's enemy. 
what they, what they say to us is not that God, Satan is God's equal but opposite enemy, but that God, for whatever reason, has given him a certain amount of latitude, of authority and power to operate in this world. And the way he has primarily exercised that power and rulership is that he is the driving force behind the ideas and the philosophies and the truths that the world holds uncritically. The prevailing ideas that shape the world we live in, he is the primary agent that drives him forward. I think if you read scripture, if you are in Christ, this is a belief we can share. That God alone has legitimate claim to rule over the human heart. And that when he exercises that authority, he does so for the good of all. I believe that Satan rejects that authority 100%. He hates it. I think Satan is smart enough to know he will not convince many human beings to turn around and worship him instead. You agree? Even in the secular world, when you go, oh, by the way, I'm a a Satanist, even non-religious people go, oh, (laughs) that's weird. And they might even take an instinctive step back because people associate Satan with darkness and evil and those kinds of things. I don't think Satan's going to succeed in turning the world into worshiping him, but I think his main aim is if I can't have you, no one will. His strategy is scorched earth. His strategy strategy is this. If I cannot get people to turn around and worship me, I will make them stop worshiping him. And so that's what he works hard to do. He works hard to blind people from seeing in Jesus who he truly is. And he works very hard to blind Christians from understanding how the fullness of Christian life can be lived as we submit to Jesus as Lord and King. I want to say this on record to Harvest Community Church. You cannot, I cannot live the fullness of Christian life without obedience to a God who orders the world for our good. I cannot follow just my own heart, my own spirit, my own desires, and expect to experience the fullness of life, which is described in the pages of Scripture. Families, friendships, countries have come to ruin because someone actually believed they could accomplish that. Obedience to a benevolent king is the only way the fullness of Christian life can be experienced. And if obedience is a difficult word for you in your relationship with God, that is the first thing we have to tackle together. Let me wrap up this way. Paul promises in this passage... that we have access to spiritual weapons that can fight in this spiritual war. If you're a math whiz, you're coming unarmed to a spelling bee. Amen? So you've got to be armed for the fight you're in. What he says is we have access to weapons that can demolish these strongholds. But what are those weapons? 
It's interesting that he doesn't elaborate on what those weapons are, but clues are present all throughout the New Testament. And I think one of the greatest clues for how we fight with these spiritual weapons is shown to us the one time right after his baptism that Satan approached Jesus in the wilderness and said, I want to 1v1 you. I hear this all the time when I'm playing Call of Duty and I'm trashing the other kids in a lobby and one kid keeps saying to me, hey you, I want to 1v1 you, you're a cheater. I'm like, all right, let's go. If they could only know it was a 50-year-old pastor (laughs) owning them. Satan decides to 1v1 Jesus, and he gets his butt handed to him. And we learn in that encounter the kind of weapons Jesus used to defeat the enemy. Satan aims three temptations at Jesus, and I'm not going to expound on it much. First temptation is, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He had just been fasting for 40 days, and it says he was very hungry. Well, you think? 40 days, no food. He was super hungry. And so Satan goes, well, you're the son of God, right? Why don't you tell these stones to become delicious hot bread, maybe a little olive oil and and salt, and eat it? Second temptation. By the way, the idea behind that first temptation is get what you want when you want it. Don't wait for anyone else. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. What's that all about? You're trying to get a following. You're trying to show people how powerful you are, that you're the son of God. Why don't you do it this way? Jump off the highest point, and then before you hit the ground and splat, stop yourself. Like Spider-Man jump. You know, like, do that. And everyone will be like, who is this guy? And they will be amazed at the spectacle, and they will follow you. You will get their attention. Do it that way. Show your power through power. Show your power by beating gravity. But of course, that's not the plan God had for him. He would show his power through his death. Through what looked like losing, he would gain the victory. Finally, he says, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I know that doesn't sound like much to you, but imagine every nice car, every beautiful house, Every exclusive club, every amazing suit of clothing, pair of shoes, whatever appeals to you. He says, everything you could ever want, I'll give to you, and I'll only ask one thing. Just bow down and worship me. Just say, I I worship you, Satan. That's all I'll ever ask from you. Just worship me, and I'll give you everything. This is the promise that's not his to offer, but he will offer it again and again. I will give you everything and ask nothing. In fact, the reverse is true. He will take everything from you and give you nothing. Because in the end, he has nothing he legitimately can offer you. Nothing that matters. Jesus teaches us some important things about how to fight a spiritual fight with spiritual weapons. He was in prolonged fasting and prayer in solitude for 40 days. And that weakened his body, but it greatly strengthened his soul. And the idea is this. You can't just know what the right moves are. You've got to be in the condition to fight them. Anyone here run a marathon before? Not a single. There's got to be at least one. Yeah, I know there's one. Okay, so Olivia's back. I know she's running a marathon. Olivia, could you teach me how to run a marathon tomorrow? Sure. And could I do it? No. 
You, you get, it's okay if you say, you can't, learn, you can't run a marathon by studying a website and marathon running because it's not knowledge alone that carries the day. I have to be in condition to do that right thing. And I think that's the deficit many of us are carrying to the fight. It's not that we don't know what the, the moves are. We are not in condition to do much of it. The right thing in a spiritual fight is often the hard thing, and it's a measure of fitness and condition, not just knowledge. Do you know how hard it is to forgive a person who has legitimately done wrong things to you? Do you know how hard it is not to take offense, but to show grace to another human being? It is next to impossible, and everything rests on the spiritual condition in which you face that hard choice. It's not just what should I do, but can I choose it? What is the condition, the fitness level of my soul, my heart? You don't get there without seriously working on the condition of your soul. So one of the things Jesus taught us is that we don't just read the Bible to be religiously faithful. We read it, we pray, we fast, we do these things because our soul has a condition just like our body. And if we worked on our spirit as actively as we work on our bodies and our our checkbooks, we would fare so much better when the fight comes to our door. What kind of condition are you in today? Are you fit for the spiritual battle you find yourself in? Do you have any idea how hard it is to work through conflict? To deny yourself opportunity? To give things away that are legitimately yours? These are not easy things. Spiritual fitness matters. We also see that in response to every lie Satan told, Jesus had a simple answer, and it was just to quote a word of Scripture He didn't engage in extended dialogue or debate with Satan. He just, Satan would lie and Jesus would go, here's a Bible verse for you, Satan. And this is not like Harry Potter wizards throwing spells at each other. Don't get that wrong picture. It wasn't like just words being thrown about. Here's what Jesus is saying. What you're saying is awfully seductive. Right now, I wish that were true, but it simply is not true according to the word of my God. I will believe what God has said, not what I wish were true in this situation. I will believe what God has said, even if it costs me far more than another version of the truth I would like to believe. I will believe God's word, not as some mantra or some spell that I cast, but as the truth behind how God intends this life to work. I will stand on God's word. Let me ask you this. Whatever situation you find yourself in today that's hard, If you truly believed what God says to you about your situation, what would you choose or think or say or do? If you truly believed it, what would the result be in your life? We don't just memorize scripture so that our guilt becomes more refined. Oh yeah, that verse. That's why I feel bad today. We memorize scripture because we're saying to ourselves, this is what God said, and it is true. I will stand on that word, whatever it costs me. I will live like I truly believe that God spoke the truth. And finally, what we see is when Satan says, worship me, Jesus is fiercely loyal to his father. Loyalty matters. How many of you have been burned by disloyalty before? All of us, probably. 
someone who is disloyal to us, it deeply wounds our hearts. And the one way that God, that Jesus really defeats Satan, he goes, I refuse to elevate anyone above me, above my, my heavenly father. God comes first, hands down in every situation. I will never betray the trust of my father. I will never besmirch his name. I will never turn my back on him. And I ask you this question, in whatever situation you find yourself in, if you were fiercely loyal to God, what would that result in? What decision, what word, what belief would reveal the deepest loyalty to God in your life? Satan threw three, three pitches. None of them worked. He struck out. And it says, then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. We don't defeat Satan by extending ourselves in debate with him, trying to go toe-to-toe with him. We just resist him, take our stand, and we hang on to the things we know are inviolably true according to God. Satan came offering real food, real fame, real fortune. Never underestimate the blinding power of real temptation. I've been offered huge amounts of money in the past, and I thought I would be okay saying, that's all right, I have a different calling. I'm going to confess to you, I was completely dumbstruck by how deeply it affected me. When I retire from ministry, there's a good chance that I will spend some years of my life working in the marketplace. And I'm already getting my heart ready because real temptation for real benefit, real gain is incredibly blinding to the human spirit. I need to stop trying to fight Satan in prolonged dialogue and debate and learn to take my stand on what I truly believe Jesus says. Brother of Jesus, the Apostle James, would write, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't watch movies like The Exorcist and believe that you are powerless in front of the enemy. You have incredible authority in Christ. And the greatest authority you have is to stand on his truth and resist the devil. You can resist. And you can fight as Jesus fought. And he will flee from you as he fled from Jesus. Every conflict, every tension, every problem in our lives began as an idea, a belief. What belief, what idea are you in the grips of today that wants to steal from you the fullness of life which God calls you to? I want to invite us just to take a moment and... You know, the easiest thing in a sermon is to nudge someone else and go, you really need to hear this. I think one of the hardest things is to figure out where am I in this? Where are my eyes closed? Where have I decided to silence God because I don't want to hear it? I've had to do that this week, and it's been intensely uncomfortable as I think about the way I've led our church, the way I've led my family. I've had to confront a lot of things which need confronting. 
And I can't say that it's been a fun process or it's been comfortable. It's very hard when you submit yourself to the Lord's examination. I'm going to ask you to take a moment and begin that process in your own life. It's not my job to accuse you of anything or to point out anything in you. But I believe God wants to do that directly for you now. So let's do that for just a minute. If you need to confess something, if you need to hang on firmly to a truth you've forgotten, would you take a minute as we begin to sing just to continue in a spirit of prayer and take care of that between you and God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.